Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Now, before you say anything else, Andy, I want to know one thing. <laughs> What's that? Tell me we're going to make actual progress today. Tell me wow. we're covering more than four chapters. Well, first of all, I-, I take umbrage at the suggestion that we made no progress last time. We may not have covered a lot of distance in the saga itself, but uh, I thought the discussion was both informative and fun. Don't try to get around me by invoking sentence at Salas. I will concede it was an effective way to wrap up the first half of the saga. We managed to hit a lot of points in that episode that we didn't have a chance to hit while going through the summary. All granted. Yeah. But I repeat my question. Are we covering more than four chapters this time? Yes. Very good. Yes, we are. Um, We're even going to cover more than five chapters. More than (laughs) ten chapters. (laughs) Assuming we don't get uh, carried away by too many digressions, that is. I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, Actually, we should be very worried about that. (laughs) Yes, Uh, we should. (laughs) We're exactly the kind of people who digress and lose track of time all the time. Yeah, sure. But uh, as long as those digressions are always brilliant, I don't think we have a problem, do we? Always brilliant. Well, I think we have a big problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How about uh, mostly brilliant some of the time? I'd settle for occasionally insightful, but making steadfast progress through the saga. Okay, we could do I'd that. like to finish Njal's saga one day, you know? This is already our sixth episode. That's a lot. That means we now have as many episodes as there are flavors of quarks known to particle physics. <laughs> is, is that uh, your memory of high school science class coming in handy finally? Stay in school, kids! Uh, six is the number of days required to create the world, according to Judeo-Christian tradition. That's true. And does that mean that we get to rest on the seventh episode? No, it does not. Ah, oh well. Now, six is also the perfect number. It's the very first perfect mm-hmm. number, which has a lot of significance mm-hmm. for ancient philosophers and uh, medieval theologians. Wait, wait, wait. I can't bring up science class, but you're going to bring in perfect numbers? Yeah. Are you at least going to explain them? Hey, look, you said that you didn't want any delays this time around. We've hardly got time to go into the theory behind perfect numbers. Fair enough. Although they are really interesting. Well, I... I I only really know about the concept from reading uh, Augustine's City of God, which might sound like odd reading material for an atheist, but uh, it's pretty standard fare for medieval lit professors. Well, it is, yeah. Yeah, and if you're uh, really looking to get confused, just pick up a copy of City of God and open to Book 11, Chapter 30, where he discusses the perfection of the number six and the value of numerology. John, you know I don't get along well with numbers, but uh, that chapter is enough to short-circuit my brain. It's crazy. It's good stuff. No, it's not. It, it's very poorly written nonsense. Ooh, church father burn. Yeah. Speaking of you and numbers, uh, did you see that tweet last week from Kate Sherrod about starting a saga thing drinking game? Yes. Yeah, I got a big laugh out of that. Mm. Yeah, I know she mentioned uh, Andy Math as one of the drinking triggers, which we've already covered. Um, and trust me, Kate, Math is already a drinking trigger for me. Well, she also mentioned accusations of derailing the conversation as a trigger, which uh, we've already done once this episode. Yeah, if, if, if not more. Uh, so I, I think Kate's on to something here. Now, we here at Saga Thing don't want to encourage the irresponsible consumption of alcoholic beverages. No, naturally, no. That would be uh, irresponsible. That's not us. Right. Although we're entirely in favor of responsible consumption. I want to be clear about that. Sure. Uh, but one could play along with one's favorite G-rated beverage of choice. There you go. Like a, a nice cup of tea. Perhaps a cool milkshake. Yeah, whatever floats your proverbial boat, including uh, root beer floats. Um, so if, if one were inclined to play along, uh, what are the rules of the game, according to Kate? Uh, well, we already covered a couple of them. Andy math and accusations of derailing the conversation. 
Princess Bride quotes, <laughs> silly character voices. Um, there weren't that many, but Kate was writing on Twitter. I think she got quite a few in 140 characters. Yeah, well, that explains uh, why there are only four rules then. Uh, okay, I kind of like this. So if anyone has other ideas for when to drink while listening to this podcast, just send your... How about um, when contemplating the sheer amount of work still ahead of us in finishing Yal Saga? If that doesn't make you want to drink, I don't know what will. Yeah, but that that only covers us, though. So... <laughs> so everyone, send your suggestions to us on Twitter at SagaThingPod or Facebook where we're SagaThingPodcast with the hashtag SagaThingDrinkingGame. Is this really a good idea? Uh, you know, probably not, but uh, eh, who are we to stop our listeners from having fun? Uh-huh. I want to reiterate that my students should stick to water, soda, milk, or juice. No shenanigans now. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get our quick recap done and then we can jump into the action. Uh, sounds good to me. Last time on Njal Saga. Njal plotted vengeance against Mor Valgudson and the other conspirators, while Gunnar's spirit sang about confronting one's fate by the moonlight. And with Skarpathen by his side, Gunnar's son Hogni went on the warpath, killing Hrold and Hjort first, followed by Starkath and his son Thorgir. Your news voice is starting to sound more and more like Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> But the conniving Maud Valgetson managed to convince the two Avengers that a peaceful settlement could be more advantageous than his well-deserved death. Once everything had been settled in court, and the loose ends tied up, peace was restored to the region at last. But for how long? Now see, that was pretty quick. Yeah, no, it's amazing how easy it is to do a summary when we only covered four chapters. (laughs) It is, you know, we should do that more often. Uh, But uh, things are about to get a whole lot more complicated. Whereas the last episode served as a conclusion to the first half of the saga, this episode will provide a transition to the section concerning the burning of Njal and the repercussions of that event. Right. Now, with the closing of one story, a new one begins. And in order to do that, the author needs to establish a few new characters and set up the tensions that will lead to Njal's death. Uh, just a few characters, huh? <laughs> a little optimistic, I think. Well, we'll do our best to limit the introduction of new characters to our discussion. Uh, go ahead and hit the button, Andy. You got it, pal. In this episode of Saga Thing, we follow the converging foreign adventures of Thrain Zygvason and Grimm and Helgi Njalsson. Listen as Thrain Zygvason swashbuckles his way into the heart of Earl Hauken, just like his kinsman Gunnar. If everything goes well, Thrain will return home to Iceland as the new leader of his clan. The journey for Helgi and Grimm Njalsson, on the other hand, is fraught with danger at every turn. Blown off course, the Njalsons quickly find themselves in a battle for their lives against a fierce fleet of Vikings. Outnumbered and under duress, can the Njalsons get out of this mess on their own? Along the way, you'll meet the handsome hero, Kari Salmundersen, a dashing adventurer who joins the Njalsons and gives them a taste of the hero's life. When the time comes, Kari will take up the lead of this story, but that's a tale for another day. And then there's Hrop, a rogue and a scoundrel of the highest order. Watch out, ladies. He's a charmer who's got only one thing on his mind. And wherever this rapscallion goes, chaos soon follows. Things get ugly when all of these men meet on the shores of Norway. And the consequences of that meeting will set in motion the sequence of events that leads to the burning of Njal Thorgerson. What exactly happens in Norway? How does it affect things back in Iceland? What's Hogger doing all this time? And who is Hoskold Thrainson? 
find out in this episode of Njal Saga Part 6. Well, uh, there's a lot going on in our story this time around. Uh, but yeah. fortunately, all this feuding makes for fast-paced action. I mean, if there's ever going to be a section of this saga that we can more or less just read out loud and still be sure of being entertaining, I would think this one is it. Great. So uh, we can just have everyone go and read this section to themselves and you and I can quit early tonight. Thanks for listening, everybody. Are you kidding? Uh, look, I'm not going to give anything away, but in this episode, we get some great characters, a new set of dangers for the Nelsons, some really interesting feud dynamics at work, and we get to see what happens when you mix ice hockey and axe fighting. Well, you, you get an Olympic event that the Scandinavian countries would totally dominate. <laughs> I don't know about that. Canada has both lumberjacks and NHL teams. Don't count them out. Ah, that's true. Now now, now I really want to see this event. <laughs> well, we get to read about it at least. I wouldn't miss this yeah. for the world. Well, you know, I suppose we didn't get these microphones out for nothing. And mm. to be quite honest, this is an underappreciated section of Njal's Saga, and it's one of my favorites. Why? Well, well first of all, like you said, it's action-packed. We're, I mean, we're headed to Norway and we're going to go to Scotland in this episode. And the action just, it never disappoints in either place. Absolutely not. And the second thing that I like about it is a bit more literary. So oh. uh, bear with me. <laughs> now, I just like the way it's written. <laughs> the pacing, the rising tension, and all the characters are brilliantly executed. And plus, this section sets up the rest of the saga in some really interesting ways. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on all of that right now. Well, the pacing thing is probably worth pausing over before we start. And yes, I realize that's a bit of an irony. Uh, <laughs> this episode might strike some as an odd pause in the action, since we really aren't going to be focusing on Njal this time around. Uh, and in fact, for most of this episode, as you said, we won't even be in Iceland. Yeah, as we said at the end of our last episode, this section of the saga serves as a transitional moment between the first half of the saga, where the focus was on Gunnar, and the second half, where the focus shifts to Njal. Right, now some critics agree with us that this is the beginning of the second half, but others, like Lars Lonroth, contend that it's actually the final section of Gunnar's part of the saga. Mm-hmm. He argues that Njal's saga actually begins in chapter 100 with the conversion to Christianity. Well, at some point we're splitting hairs, but I'm going to go ahead and disagree with Lonroth here. If you look at how saga feuds are typically structured, which kind of determines the structuring of the narrative, we begin with an introduction, followed by a cause for conflict or a disruption of the normal balance of things. And then we get a series of revenge episodes that increase in scale until we get to the climax or the major confrontation. This is then followed, usually, by a few more revenge acts and, and then a final settlement. And we've seen this a million times already. Right. Well, and thank God you're not splitting hairs. But I agree. Uh, if we follow that pattern of feud development, then we've already gone through each of those stages in the Gunnar narrative. The introduction was the conflict over Un's dowry, where we first met Gunnar and Njal. The balance was disrupted by the feuding between Holgrith and Bergthora, which was followed by a series of feuds between Gunnar and everybody else, right? a variety of people like Otkil and the two Thorgirs. Our climax is obviously the ambush on Gunnar's home and his death. That was followed by Skarpathen and Hogni's vengeance, which resolved the majority of the feuds left over from that first half. And finally, any remaining issues or controversies are handled in the settlement that pushed Gear the Gothi out of the region and forced Morth to pay for everything. That's exactly how the feud pattern in Saga Narrative plays out. So I don't know how Lonroth argues that the Gunnar section doesn't end there. Yeah, I'm not sure either. He lumps the Scarpathen and Hogni vengeance in with the climax and points to what we're about to cover as the concluding acts of vengeance, but I just don't see that connection. Um, everything we're going to discuss today is clearly designed to lay foundations for the eventual conflicts that leads to the burning of Njal. Yeah, we'll be spending a lot of our time this episode focusing on the actions surrounding the Njalsen's trip to Norway and the repercussions of that visit. 
But the most important part of this whole interlude will be the introduction of a man named Kari Silmunderson. Which is interesting because Kari only plays a very minor role in this section. I mean, we'll certainly talk about him here, but it would be easy to listen to this episode or to read this section of the saga and not fully appreciate the significance of Kari's introduction. Now, I know we've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. This author likes to play the long game in his narrative development and in the establishment of his characters. Kari's introduction and his character is going to take place over many chapters. And we won't fully appreciate who Kari is or what he brings to the narrative until well after Njal's death. Kari is going to be the link that holds together this whole chain of events leading up to the saga's conclusion. And like I said before, this is a well-written saga with a lot of forethought put into the structuring of the plot and the execution of the narrative themes. This is an impressive saga, and I really like it. Have I mentioned that I like it? <laughs> it is, but we did a lot of lit class-style discussion last time around. There's no time to lose. Uh, we need to make up some ground in this saga by plowing forward through some chapters. Yeah, I can't promise that we'll plow through, but uh, yeah, we'll definitely make up some ground here. You ready to dive in? I was born ready. Let's do it. Part 21. Thrain Sigfusson goes to Norway. <laughs> Part 21. Okay. Uh, before we start, we need to hop in our little Viking DeLorean here and uh, go back in time. Back in time. We've got to go back, Marty, <laughs> to chapter 75. When Gunnar and his brother Kolskeg were leaving Iceland as outlaws for the killing of Thorger Otkelsen. Wait, 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 wait. Leaving aside your god-awful Doc Brown impression. I didn't do an impression. The point of this episode is to move things forward. Do we really have to go backwards? Yes. And stop acting like you're surprised. Uh, you know exactly why we have to go back to chapter 75. Marty! That doesn't mean I approve. <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. The, so the section we're about to cover really carries on from that point. If we go back to that chapter... We learn that several other Icelanders were preparing to go abroad at the same time as Gunnar and Kolskegi were mm -hmm. planning for their exile. That's right. And at the start of chapter 75, we're told that Thrain Sigfusson approached his wife Thorgird to say that he was planning a trip to Norway. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you who don't remember, Thorgird is the daughter of Holgerth, which makes Thrain both Gunnar's uncle and stepson-in-law at the same time. Yeah, you're really hung up on that one, aren't you? A little bit. Uh, it is just an interesting problem for a genealogy. I don't know if you've had a good look at the genealogies in the back of your copy of Njal's Saga. I have. Uh, they avoid drawing any line to represent Thrain's relationship to Gunnar beyond the fact that he's his uncle. Well, technically, that's all he is, but but I get your point. Stepson-in-law. <laughs> now, whereas Gunnar elects to stay in Iceland and meet his death, Thrain Sigfusson takes passage on a ship and disappears from the narrative. Well, you make it sound like a long time. We actually pick up Thrain's story from that point in Chapter 82. It's not a huge stretch. Unless you're listening to our podcast, <laughs> in which case it's going to feel like a lot of time has passed since we pondered the nature of Gunnar's character and the politics of Southern Iceland. Ah, and what fun we had. Uh -huh. But we're on to Thrain now. Uh, and with Gunnar dead, his sons and brother out of the saga, uh, with Gunnar dead, his sons and brother out of the saga, the torch of Gunnar's authority and reputation appear to be transferred to his uncle Thrain Sigfusson. That may not feel terribly significant in this episode of Saga Thing, but... Keep it in mind as we move forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's another good argument for why this is the beginning of the Nial section, since all the major threads that come together in the end of the story begin right here with Thrain's trip to Norway. I agree. And it's almost as if the author wants his readers to know that Thrain is stepping into Gunnar's place from this point forward, because when Thrain arrives in Norway, he's invited to Earl Hauken's court for a meeting. When the Earl learns that Thrain is related to Gunnar of Lidarendi, he says... You'll benefit from that, for I've met many Icelanders. 
but none to match him. Which is a nice reminder of how important the behaviors of one's kin is in this world. Yes. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch, right? when the reputation of one individual can determine the public evaluation of entire kin groups. Ah, exactly. And Thrain is in a position to take advantage of his nephew's reputation now by accepting a place in Earl Hawkins' court. Andy, I hate to interrupt the flow of this with the digression already, but now seems as good a time as ever to address a listener question. Really? Now, we literally just started on the Thrain section, and uh, we're already going to hit pause. Only kind of. It's a good question, (laughs) and this is the right place for it. Okay, well, go ahead. What's the question? So this one comes from Christina Danielle on Twitter way back at the beginning of August. Oh, ages ago. Well, weeks ago, anyway. Uh, She wants to know why we say Earl instead of Jarl. Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember that one. Uh, I think I gave a very simple answer, as is my want. Um, and, and that was that uh, we're kind of lazy and we tend to anglicize names and titles somewhat randomly on this podcast. Um, we also use, tra- you know, English translations, and that's part of what happens. Right. Now, that's a that's an honest answer. It's not necessarily the one I would have given. <laughs> uh, but we're not necessarily proud of switching back and forth. But in a conversational format like that, it's, it just kind of happens. Yeah. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the inner workings of medieval Scandinavian politics and the hierarchies of power. Wait, wait, wait. Who's not familiar with the inner workings of medieval Scandinavian politics and its hierarchies of power? I know, right? It's crazy. Isn't that just common knowledge for all in the 21st century? Well, it should be, but uh, anyway. Uh, I think I th- there's an app for that. Okay. Anyway, I think, it's an, uh, I think it's interesting at moments like this to situate ourselves in the real world if we can, if only because it helps to provide a bit of historical context for where and when we are. And in the sagas, we typically have a couple of standard ways of figuring out rough dates for what's happening. We know that the settlement of Iceland began in the second half of the 9th century. That's a good starting point for any story. Then we have the conversion, which happens around the year 1000. So unless one of those two things occur in the story, we have to use other clues, uh, mostly references to known people and events, that can help situate ourselves temporally. In this case, we're once again arriving in Norway, where Earl Hauken rules in the name of the Danish king, King Harald Bluetooth. And we've spoken about Hauken before, since he's a popular figure in the sagas. Well, I've spoken about him because he appeared in this saga earlier. That's right. Um, and he's typically cast in a more negative light, in large part because he's he's a pagan who was deposed by King Olaf Tryggvason. Yeah, I believe we told the story of Hauken hiding in a pigsty before um, and how he was killed by his own slave. And that happened in the year 995. So that gives us a mm-hmm. sense of where we're at. Yeah, we we did tell that story. Uh, now, obviously, Thrain arrives in Norway before that happens. Well, obviously, Hauken's still alive. But, I mean, not but not too long before. Mm-hmm. Njal Saga actually relates that same story briefly in chapter 100 as part of the introduction to the conversion. Does it really? Yeah, it doesn't say much, uh, but part of establishing King Olaf is acknowledging the death of Hauken. Interesting. Now, I forgot about that. What what does it say exactly? Let me find it. Uh, hang on. Okay. Um, it just says, The end of Earl Hauken's life came when the slave Kark cut his throat at Rimul in Galdrlal. And again, that's in the year 995. Um, yeah, I think that helps explain the role Hauken's about to play in this section of the saga then. What do you mean? Well, remember how we said last time around that this author likes to seed things well in advance? So if you pay attention to Hauken's behavior and the things he's interested in during this Norwegian interlude, I think you'll find him to be somewhat irrational, somewhat gullible, and prone to fits of anger. He's not exactly the ideal image of a ruler. No, he's not. Uh, but he's not unkind to Thrain, who we're supposed to be talking about right now. Ahem, ahem. Mm-hmm. Well, that might make us suspicious of Thrain, in fact. But uh, mm. let's get back to the story, shall we? Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, Thrain finds Hauken's court to be quite comfortable. 
Oh, and I think I was saying before that Thrain is carrying the torch for Gunnar now, right? Yeah, uh, you said he was going to take advantage of Gunnar's reputation. A little prejudice creeping in there, I think. Mm. Well, I, that sounds a little bit sinister. I'm going to say this. At the beginning here, Thrain's not a bad guy. I just meant that he's in a good position with Earl Hauken thanks to Gunnar's efforts earlier in the saga. And from a literary perspective, Thrain is now stepping into Gunnar's place in the narrative. That story began in Norway with Earl Hauken, so it provides some narrative symmetry to begin here with Thrain as well. Fair enough. Um, and just like Gunnar... Thrain is going to battle some Vikings in the name of Earl Hauken, earn a name for himself, and sail home with silk-lined pockets and an enhanced reputation, right? Hmm. Kind of, but not exactly. Again, Thrain may carry Gunnar's torch, but he's not exactly Gunnar. Things are going to be a bit more complicated with Thrain. Yeah. Uh, The link between Gunnar and Thrain is emphasized when Earl Hauken learns of an evil Viking named Cole raiding the countryside. The Earl says... Gunnar of Leatherendi is too far away from us now. He would kill this outlaw of mine if he were here. But now he would be killed by Icelanders, and it is a bad thing that he didn't come back to us. A bad thing indeed. But Thrain hears this and steps to the front saying, I'm not Gunnar, but I am kin to him, and I'm ready to take on this venture. So, yeah, he's definitely stepping into the void left by Gunnar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And like Gunnar, Thrain is successful. He chases Cole south to Denmark, where they meet in battle somewhere in the Strait of Orsund. Cole turns out to be just as terrible and imposing as Thrain had been warned about. The guy jumps on board Thrain's ship wearing a golden helmet and just starts killing everybody around him. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm looking at my book right now, and there's a little note in the margins mm-hmm. here that I made a while back. And it's just a number with a question mark next to it. Do you know why that is? I know exactly why that is. Yeah. Because the author doesn't tell us how many men Cole killed here. Yes. See, yeah, and this kind of thing happens to us all the time. I mean, I mean, how can we do our body count properly, John, when the authors can't even be bothered to give us the number? I, come on, man. It does get frustrating. I mean, you almost, you'd think they had other priorities. Uh, I don't think we're going to be short on bodies for our Nyal Saga body count, but it would be nice to be able to count these guys. True, although, I mean, just take a moment and imagine what it could be. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. glorious. <laughs> You're starting to sound a little bloodthirsty. Uh, <laughs> Too many anyway, like his predecessor, Thrain, well, Thrain won't back down from a fight. Uh, he charges forward toward Cole, but Cole anticipates the attack and quickly strikes back at Thrain. This first blow splits Thrain's shield from top to bottom, and so our new protagonist is vulnerable to Cole's next strike. Sounds like Thrain is going to be a short-lived newly minted hero. But just as Cole is about to strike the killing blow... A rock comes out from nowhere and hits Cole on the sword hand. Hold on a minute. Now, uh-huh, he's stunned from the pain and drops his sword. Uh-huh. In that moment, Thrain makes his move, swinging his sword so hard that Cole's leg is cut clean off. <laughs> and with that, they finish him. Thrain cuts off Cole's head as a gift to Earl Hawken and dumps the body overboard. Okay. Hold on. Uh-huh. This is all sounding very familiar. Uh-huh. Didn't we do something like this in another saga recently? Like, uh, I, I remember something with the, the stone in the hand. Was it in Rekdala Saga or maybe Finn Bogey? Close. It's more recent than that. <laughs> we, I mean, we did Rekdala be- right before this Endless Summer Saga we're doing. It, what, do we do something in between? Am I forgetting something? No, 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 no. We saw this same thing at the beginning of a little story called Njal's Saga. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm serious. You're thinking of Rut. Oh, my God. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, that that does seem like forever ago, so forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're right. It was Hrut. 
Uh, hold on. Let me let me find that scene in the book. That shouldn't be too hard. Yeah, it's, it's in one of the first chapters. Oh, okay, here it is. Yeah, I even marked this thing. Uh, go to chapter five and look at this. <laughs> Hrut was fighting Otley and oh, oh, look, it was for another Hauken. Uh-huh, yep. And it was in Orisund, exactly where Thrain encounters Colt. Interesting. Uh, look, there you go. It says, Otley swung quickly at Hrut's shield and split it mm-hmm. all the way down. Otley was then struck on his hand by a stone and his sword fell. Hrut picked up the sword and cut his leg off, then struck him his death wound. Okay, Mm -hmm. John, what are we going to make of this? I mean, is this a bit of convenient narrative recycling or is there some kind of intentional echoing going on here? It it feels deliberate to me. This is actually the third time we've followed an important Icelander into Adventures Abroad. And there are several echoes in the narrative, right? This is just the closest one. Mm -hmm. It's tricky to establish exactly what the echoes are in service of, but it's hard to believe they're not intentional. Well, nice way to dodge that question. But uh, either way, (laughs) there's probably something up here. Um, wait, and, and if that's not is, dodging the question, <laughs> and if this is true and the narrative symmetry we talked about earlier is indeed being laid out, then is Thrain supposed to be the Hrut or the Gunnar of this section? I mean, what's going on? Well, it's hard to say, but I think it might be a bit of both, uh, or more to the point that all three reflect a story element the, the author wants to feature. Hmm. So Thrain now represents Gunnar's interest in the saga, but he's playing a similar role in the plot to that of Hrut, who's really just there to kick things off. Kind of. Uh, and the arc of this story is significant for the differences as well as for the similarities. The author is, I think, ringing changes on a theme, creating several narrative arcs that comment on one another. Uh, for example, Hrut, as you said, is there to kick things off. Thrain, in many ways, kicks off the second half of the saga and then, as we're going to see, disappears. Uh, but unpacking all the connections here could take a while. We've got a lot of work to do. True. Okay, so there's probably more going on there, but we're not going to work it out here. Listeners can play with that little puzzle themselves on their own in their free time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe jot it down for homework and send it in to us. Um, but uh, why don't we try to wrap up the Thrain section? There's still a lot of saga we've got to get through. Yeah. Um, so Thrain carries the head home to Earl Hawken and gains a great deal of respect in this little venture, uh, as well as a beautiful ship with an ornamental griffin's head, aptly named the Griffin. Mm, how creative of them. Uh, remember how uh, remember how we talked about Gunnar's flashiness last time? Well, the mm-hmm. Earl mentions it when he gives Griffin to Thrain, further underscoring the Gunnar-Thrain connection. He says, You're a great one for show, Thrain. You and your kinsman Gunnar have that in common. It's subtle. Yes. Uh, once again, the, the traits of one kinsman are often found in another, which is why so much emphasis is put on public image and genealogical connections in this culture. If one member of your family screws up, it brings shame and dishonor to the whole group. In many ways, it's part of a system of checks and balances in a culture that lacks a centralized authority. Hmm, exactly. Now, it, it sounds to me like you paid attention during all those feud conversations we had back in grad school. I don't remember those conversations. <laughs> so I wouldn't go that far. All right. <laughs> anyway, we're told that Thrain and the Earl sailed around on Griffin that summer on a variety of errands. And Griffin turns out to be the fastest ship in the fleet, which might be Mm -hmm. significant later. Not one of the four fastest. Uh, (laughs) And every little detail in this saga can be significant, which speaks to how rewarding this careful reading and rereading can be within Yal's saga. Exactly. And in the spring, news arrives of Gunnar's death, Mm. which brings us back to the present in the timeline of the saga, or at least very close to it. Right, which of course means it's time for us to go back in time once again. (sighs) 
Part 22, Adventures in Scotland with Grimm and Helge Nielsen. And here we are, back in Chapter 75. Oh, welcome back, everyone. Looks so different. To set the scene, Thrain Sigfusson is just boarding a ship to Norway, again, while Gunnar and Kolskegi <laughs> are, again, making preparations to begin their outlawry abroad, again. See, now, this is an excellent illustration of that whole concept of the Eternal Nows. Gunnar is dead, Ugh. but he's also alive. Yeah, 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 he's also just being born all at the same time. <laughs> what are the Njalsons up to, you ask? Oh, I didn't ask, but I can see you want to move on from the Nows. That's correct. I want to move on to the next Now. Ah, well, see, that's just it. You can't really, and you can. You're both stuck and unstuck all at the same time. You're <laughs> like a hairy Billy Pilgrim John, leaping through your own timeline. <laughs> I think I'd rather be a hairy Phil Connors. He seems to have more fun with his eternal present. See, that's completely different. But uh, you know, rather than debate those temporal realities with you, uh, we're going to check in with Helgi and Grim Njalsson. What oh, are they up good. to in Chapter 75? Well, uh, we actually did cover this back in Episode 20C, uh, so I'll be brief here. Uh, it says that Grim and Helgi asked their father Njal for permission to go abroad. And this is where Njal tells them, your travels will be troublesome, and it's not clear that you'll hold on to your lives. It's also likely, he says, that your travels will lead to problems here if you return. Ha! Take that, Lonroth. That's exactly <laughs> wow. why this whole section is the introduction to the second half of the saga, and not the conclusion to the first half. Even Njal gets it. And he doesn't even have a beard. Mm-hmm. I see what you're doing here. But save it. Uh, so, the Nelsons book passage on a ship bound for Norway... And ignore their father's warning. Which seems to happen to Njal a lot. I mean, it must be incredibly frustrating to be able to see the coming of a bleak future and have no way to help those you love to avoid it. He's the beardless Cassandra of Iceland. <laughs> which I guess just makes him the Cassandra of Iceland. Yeah, I guess that would be. <laughs> uh, also, that might be a feeling that uh, Njal's story is de designed to evoke. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Fate and impending doom underlie every part of this saga. Mm -hmm. Njal gives voice to that, making the reader aware of what could be. It's an effective way to build narrative tension, especially when we sometimes see Njal's foresight working to his advantage. So, right, because it suggests that sometimes he can use that foresight to his advantage, but not, it seems, when it matters most. Well put. In fact, I was right. just about to say that. So yeah. now, back to those Njalsons. Yeah, finally. Uh, remember how they intended to sail for Norway, like everyone else in Iceland leaving that summer, apparently? That's right. Uh, well, that's not quite how things worked out. Uh, shortly after they set sail, their ship is battered by the North Sea winds and blown way off course to the south. And then they find themselves in a fog so thick that no one has any sense of where they are. Hmm. Yeah, I remember this. Let me guess. They, they find a rocky island, and they call it Rockland, and then they find a forested shore, and they call it Forestland. No, we no. did this one already. No, no. Not <laughs> quite. Uh, I said they got blown south, not west. Well, you know, first of all, John, I know exactly where they end up, because yeah. I have read the saga many times. But uh, to answer your question, directly south of Iceland is just ocean. So if they left uh -huh. from the shores of southwestern Iceland and got blown south immediately from there along the same line of longitude, then uh, they're eventually going to end up in Antarctica, which is a pretty long trip. So, yeah, pretty miserable. They're, yeah, their bleached bones would end up in Antarctica. <laughs> uh, but now you're just being ridiculous. They, they were on their way to Norway, which means they set out to the east 
along the southern coast of Iceland. Okay. Now, somewhere along the way, after they sailed off and away from the southeast coast of the island, they're hit by storms and pushed south. And rather than ask you again and get another nonsensical answer, I'll just continue <laughs> on and say that they landed somewhere off the coast of Scotland. Ah, brilliant reveal there, John. I mean, of course, everybody already knew that anyway, because the title of this section was Adventures in Scotland with Grimm and Helgi Njalsson, which sounds like mm. a great children's show. <laughs> it does. Uh, well, so much for suspense, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we got to get better at naming these sections. I think we're giving too much away. Maybe we could try to be a little bit more subtle next time. Okay. All right. So, just as Njal had warned, the journey is already looking a little bit dangerous. And things are about to get worse. They anchor the ship outside the surf in a nearby fjord and wait overnight for calmer seas. Now, keep in mind, they haven't heard the title for this section. So they still don't know where they are. This is a very uncomfortable situation. And even though the seas do calm that night, they awaken to the sight of 13 ships on the horizon. Ah, surely they've sent out a search party to come rescue the lost merchants. And they are surely not rescue ships. Though the leaders of the ships do want to help lighten the load for the lost merchants, at no charge, of course. It's quite generous. Uh, of course, because they're Vikings, and that's what Vikings do. Mm -hmm. But these are polite Vikings. <laughs> the Viking leaders reveal themselves to be Grokgard and Snakolf, the sons of Molden of Duncansby, a small territory on the northwestern tip of Scotland. They also explain that they're kinsmen of the Scottish king Melkolf. Which is interesting because Melkolf is presumably King Malcolm II of Scotland. And anyone who listens to Saga Thing must, of course, be listening to Rex Factor's series on the kings and queens of Scotland. I would hope so. And if you've been following that series, then you already know that King Malcolm II didn't begin his reign until the year 1005. And we already established that we're somewhere in history before the year 995 because... Earl Hauken is still alive, and he still rules in Norway, and Iceland is still pagan. And if that's the case, then Kenneth II should still be on the throne. And Malcolm, son of Kenneth II, should still be a prince, or whatever they call the heir in Scotland. And I don't know, what what is what do you think that's about, John? Is this just sloppy history by the author, or is there something else? I It's possible, but I think it's actually a case of an author using a more popular figure from history one who's likely known by, at least by name to his audience, in order to help establish the pedigree of these two characters. As far as the saga's plot is concerned, the more important relative is their father, Molden. But Malcolm is the more well-known figure generally. And what I think is happening is something that we see in the sagas and histories quite a lot. We're being given an anachronistic identifier for the reader's benefit. Hmm. Think about the times we've seen someone introduced with a name like Thor Woodleg or Hroman the Lame before they actually receive the injury that, that name is based on. I think this is similar. It, in that sense, it's actually similar to the Atger Halberd discussion, right? The author's using mm -hmm. an anachronistic reference in order to provide some clarity to the situation for a modern audience. Right. Malcolm slash Melkoff is going to be a well-known king, and these guys are related to him, so it's the logical identifier to use. Hmm. From the author's or reader's perspectives, it's not important that it happens later. Uh, anyway, uh, the Vikings give the merchants a choice. Right? I want to get back to the story here. Either give up all they have and live, or defend themselves and die. And, without missing a beat, Helgi Njalsson shouts out, The merchants choose to defend themselves! Which, uh, doesn't... That's your Helgi voice? Oh, what, is, what should it be? Your Helgi voice is Chevy Chase from Spies Like Us? <laughs> 
<laughs> the merchants choose to defend themselves. Um, what's it supposed to sound like? I don't know. Not that. Okay. And without missing a beat, Helgi shouts out, The merchants choose to defend themselves. Is that better? No. <laughs> go on. Just go with it. It's fine. The merchants <laughs> choose to defend themselves. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're looking for here, John. It's fine. I, I, I didn't actually mean for you to stop the first time. I was just making fun of it. <laughs> anyway, the uh, merchants aren't happy about uh, Helgi's outburst. No, they're just merchants. Uh, they're not really equipped or trained to defend themselves against a fleet of Vikings. This is a big group of Viking ships. The merchants are angry, and they start scolding Helgi for his foolishness. They do, and, and I love this exchange in the saga. As the merchants are cursing Helgi, it says that Grimm started shouting at the Vikings so that they wouldn't hear the merchants grumbling. <laughs> uh, yeah, with the urging of these two Icelanders, these noble sons of Njal, the reluctant merchants are sort of forced, slash inspired, to stand against the Vikings, and they even swear an oath to never give up. Yeah, that I would guess that's inspired, isn't it? And I think that's interesting. Uh, we've got one merchant ship... Versus 13 Viking ships. It's hardly an even match. This one doesn't look good for the Njalsons, but it is going to make for a glorious death for both of them. Oh, great. <laughs> but with the Njalsons at the front, they're actually doing quite well at first. Snockulf boards the ship, but he's quickly forced overboard by Grim Njalson. Sure, but how long can they hold out against so many men? It's it's a hopeless... Just long enough. <laughs> no, they can't. It's a hopeless situation. And before long, the Vikings are calling over and they're offering the merchants a chance to give up. But they swore an oath and they bravely refused the offer, which is admirable. But still hopeless. Indeed. Hopeless. Until suddenly, like a rock to the hand, <laughs> they spot a group of at least ten ships coming from the south around the headlands. Is that our new explanation for Deus Ex Machina plot contrivances? <laughs> a rock to the hand? I like it. Well, yeah, me too. It seems to work. Anyway, these uh, these ships are coming hard with rowers pulling at full speed straight for the Vikings. Yes. Uh, and on the lead ship, there is a man standing by the mast. Here's what we're told about him. He was wearing a silk tunic and had a gilded helmet on his head, and his hair was thick and fair. The man was holding a gold inlaid spear in his hand. This guy sounds both awesome and important. He is. Uh, and when he arrives on the scene, we learn that his name is Kari, son of Solmund. He explains that he knows of Njal and his good reputation, so he offers to help the merchants fend off the Vikings, but only if they ask. Well, it's just a funny little exchange. First of all, because they have time to talk about all this. Um, right, right. But, of course, the Njalsons then immediately say, Please help us. <laughs> right. Um, after that, Kari swings into action, and he suddenly aboards Snackoff's ship, hacking away at everyone in front of him. Snackoff rushes in to meet him, but Kari makes a backward leap over the boom, dodging the blow. Snackoff's sword sticks into the boom, and Kari ends his life. Right. Now, at that moment, Grotgard, the other Viking leader, throws his spear at Kari, but Kari again leaps into the air, this time backward, and dodges the spear. I feel like we've That's... seen this kind of leaping about before. Oh, just once, yeah. Um, now, at this point, Grimm and Helgi step in and take out Grotgard. With the two leaders dispatched, Kari, Helgi, and Grimm make short work of the rest of the Vikings. All 13 ships worth, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, remember, though, Kari arrived with a about 10 ships, maybe more, so the numbers are far more even at this point. Okay. Eventually, the remaining Vikings beg for peace, which they're immediately given, 
on the condition that they give up all their valuables. Aha! Now the shoe is on the other foot. Now the Njalsson's adventures in Scotland can truly begin. It turns out the Kari is a follower of Earl Sigurd Lodverson, who rules over the Orkneys. And uh, the dates do match up on this one. Sigurd Lodverson, mm-hmm. also known as Sigurd the Stout, was the Earl of Orkney from roughly 985 to 1014. And if you've mm-hmm. ever read Orkney Saga, which is an Icelandic history of the Earls of Orkney, you'll be familiar with Sigurd the Stout and his family. Right. Now, I know there are a lot of you out there who have asked us if we're ever going to cover Orkney Saga on this podcast, which speaks to the popularity and quality of that text. Uh, the answer is eventually going to be yes. But our goal for now is to make our way through the rest of the sagas of Icelanders first. We're just under halfway there, so be patient. We'll eventually move beyond Iceland and into some of these other great sagas. Yeah, and Orkaninga is a fun saga. Um, and for some reason, I have two copies of it. I, I don't really remember why. but I have uh, at least yeah. two. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll get there eventually. For now, we've got to finish Njal Saga. <laughs> so enjoy the little wow. taste of drama we've got here in the Orkneys. Mm-hmm. So... Kari takes the Njalsons round the Orkneys, collecting tribute for Earl Sigurth, before inviting them to join him in Sigurth's court. And with Kari vouching for them, they're soon accepted into Earl Sigurth's company. They stay with Sigurth over the winter, but as time passes, Helgi becomes more and more irritable. The Earl asks him, what's the matter? And Helgi reports that he suspects some troubles brewing in the north of Scotland. He predicts that the Scots there have killed Earl Sigurd's man and then blocked all messages from crossing the Pentland Firth that connects the Orkneys to Scotland. Right. Now, it turns out that Helgi has a bit of his father's talent for seeing the future. Helgi's prophecy turns out to be true, as two earls named Hundi and Melsnati have made an attempt to seize some of Earl Sigurd's lands. And I want to be clear, that guy's name is Melsnati. Uh... (laughs) Now, this doesn't sit well with Sigurd. <laughs> Understandably. You don't want a guy named Melsnati running over your territories. Yeah. treating yeah. You like a... you don't want him getting Melsnati with you. <laughs> no. It's disgusting. Now, according to Njal's saga, Sigurd rules over the Ross, Moray, Sutherland, and Argyll territories in Scotland. Uh, that list isn't corroborated by other sources, so we have to assume that the author is either using sources lost to modern historians... Or he's just making things up to help Sigurd seem a little bit more impressive than maybe he really is. Well, both of those are certainly possible. Uh, But this act of aggression by Earls Hundi and Melsnati leads to the Battle of Duncan's Behead. Mm -hmm. And there are no records in the Scottish annals that we know of that mention this battle. So Njal Saga is actually our only source. That's right. I spent a bit of time researching this part of the saga, and I, I really couldn't find anything to support what the author reports here. Like I said a moment ago, It's possible that the author has a chronicle available to him that we don't, but it's just as likely that he's aware of general political tensions and a lot of hostile exchanges Mm -hmm. between the earls of this region. That much at least seems true to the history of the Northeast, so we can buy this. Or he's just engaging in the good old-fashioned art of making stuff up. (laughs) Right. Uh, But whether or not it's true isn't really important for our purposes. The point of this section is to establish the characters of Grimm, Helgi, and Kari. I know. I I wish I had really thought about that before I spent two days playing around with the Scottish annals (laughs) and a stack of Scottish history books, hoping to find something that would allow me to say, yep, this happened, and here are just a few minor details that goes with it. (laughs) Hey, at least it was fun, right? Uh, It was two days, John. Two days. (laughs) But think of all the Scottish history you absorbed. Okay, I did catch a little, but uh, I was mainly combing through for evidence of the Battle of Duncan's Behead, so... Uh, So I wasn't really reading to absorb things. Hmm. 
Well, it's not like the battle is so amazing anyway. William Ian <laughs> Miller skips right over it in Why Is Your Axe Bloody? Well, I know. He barely gives four pages to the whole Norwegian Orkney interlude. Maybe that should have been assigned to you? <laughs> I, I I figured you'd say that. Uh, now, why don't you just tell us what happens in the Battle of Duncan's Behead? Uh, sure, but it's only going to underline just how little there is. Uh, <laughs> I already said that this whole piece is designed to establish Kari and the Nelsons, and as you would expect, all three of them do well in the battle. Nothing is really said of Helgi and Grimm's contributions to the battle, but Kari kills Earl Melsnati with his own spear. And afterwards, they're all rewarded for their efforts. Kari is given a good sword and a, another gold-inlaid spear. Helgi's given a gold arm ring and a fine cloak, and Grimm gets a sword and shield. The Njalsons are accepted formally as followers of Earl Sigurth, and they do what any followers of a king or earl would do at that time. They feast, and they raid, and they go on missions. <laughs> but the author kind of ignores all that, because the point was really just to give everybody something to do. True, sadly. Yeah, I'd kind of hoped for more from this <laughs> section in the end. You know, a little bit more action, but that's about all well, we get. I'm sure there's something important that we missed. Well, there is, actually, if you want to hear about it. You didn't mention what happened to Earl Hundi during the Battle of Duncan's Behead. Because it's not really relevant, but okay. Uh, he sees his buddy, Earl Melsnati, take a spear through the midsection, and he beats feet away from the battle. He does. Exactly. That's right. And, and then what happens? Not much. Uh, the battle kind of falls apart. Earl Sigurth collects the booty and calls it a day. Not quite. When Earl Hundi fled... Sigurd's army gave chase for a while, but then they stopped. And do you remember why? No, but I, I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> it's because they heard that Melkolf, who's Malcolm II, was gathering an army at Duncansby to support the rebel earls. And that's mm. when Sigurd decides to call it a day. You see, he doesn't want to face the very violent and dangerous Melkolf's army. Okay, that's very reasonable, but why is it worth noting here? Well, in the grand scheme of the narrative, it's it's not, okay? But, but <laughs> this is where I can make a few points that at least might shed some light on this brief episode and what's happening in Orkney. Uh-huh. I knew you'd find a way to shoehorn in all that reading you were doing. Go <laughs> ahead and enlighten us. It's actually not from the reading. It's it's more, you know, an understanding of the, the episode itself. Oh, well, in that case, I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. Go on. I hope you're not being condescending here. Me? Never. Mm. All right. So the first connection is this. Remember those Vikings that met Helgi and Grimm on the shores of Scotland at the start of this little adventure? Mm, Snakolf and Grutgard. Yes, I knew you'd remember the names. And uh, who was their father? Molden of Duncansby. See, now, I was hoping to catch you, but why are you so good at remembering names like that? It's really, it's really annoying. <laughs> this, this from the guy who can rattle off the distances between Icelandic farms. Ah, Go on. Well, well, I, I think that we can begin to see how the various threads of this Helgi and Grimm episode come together if we recall the other relative that Snackoff and Grotjart mention. Ah, uh, okay, I see, yes. Uh, uh-huh. This is why they mentioned Melkoff, right? I think so. When mm-hmm. Helgi and Grimm stood up to those two Viking leaders, men related to the King of Scotland and the Earl of Duncansby, which is a stone's throw from the Orkneys. Well, that'd be a hell of a stone throw, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm saying that they unwittingly started a feud with some very powerful and dangerous men, especially Melkoff. Because they go into the court and the protection of Mm -hmm. Earl Sigurd, the Earl himself becomes a viable target for both Moreland and Melkoff's enmity. In other words, the aggression that led to the Battle of Duncansby wasn't random. It was a targeted attack on Sigurd, 
who had welcomed the killers of Snackoff and Grotjart into his company. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, and once again, we can see the careful plotting of this author at work. I think you're right. This isn't just a series of random events to help establish the Nielsen's and Kari, although that does happen along the way, and really that's foregrounded. Mm-hmm. Even in a short sequence like this, the author is carefully constructing his narrative, paying attention to these actions and the motives and consequences of people the whole way. Exactly. Good. I, you see, I'm glad you like this. I think I think this works. Uh, you said you had another idea. Can you do it quickly? Not really, so I won't. <laughs> but but I will say that oh. my recent... <laughs> For a my... moment there, I thought you were going to exercise self-control. Go on. Well, just why? I'll do a little bit of control. I'm just going to say that my research into Sigurd the Stout revealed some complications to that large army being raised by King Melkolf. I mean, Sigurd is married mm-hmm. to King Melkolf's, that's Malcolm II's daughter. So why is Melkolf raising an army against his son-in-law? That part confused me. Well, didn't we say earlier that the dates are off on Melkolf in this saga? Oh. He doesn't come into power until 1005, right? Ah, that's it. See? Okay, right. Yeah, this whole thing is probably a fiction, which is good to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There. Write that down somewhere. And so whatever status Melkolf and Seagrave have at this moment in history, Seagrave probably doesn't marry into Melkolf's family until well after 1005. That probably explains it. There you go. Now, there's a little bit of controversy over whether Sigurd is married to King Malcolm II's daughter or Earl Malcolm <laughs> MacBreeks of Moray's daughter, but... Uh... Okay, uh, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Let's get back to our Scottish adventure. Excellent idea, John, though I suppose you don't want to talk about that line where it says they battled King Guthrith of uh, the Isle of Man the following summer, right? I could tell nope. you a little bit about. Uh, we should leave some fun and surprises for people when they actually read the saga. Well, they won't. I mean, that's all it says. So we, we covered it. But I could tell you a little bit about it if you want to know. So leave some things for them. <laughs> so in the spring of the year after they defeat King Gudroth, the Njalsons decide to leave the Orkney Islands and make their way long last to Norway. Where they were headed in the first place. Right. But this time they'll have a ship of their own. Earl Sigurd gives them a ship and they set sail for Norway, which concludes the Scottish adventure. Oh, there's one more minor detail that you missed, but it's an important one. We should mention it. What's that? Oh, well, the author tells us that Kari had planned to bring Sigurd's tribute to Earl Hauken in Norway later that summer. Uh, all right. Uh, okay, so that means that Kari, Helgi, and Grimm can reunite in Norway, which should prove eventful. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. In the meantime, we've got to go back in time again. Oh, God. Part 23. Crap. Wow. I mean, uh, you weren't kidding when you said that uh, you didn't want to give anything away with the section titles. What can I say? Although this one does reveal that the section is about crap. So there's a bit of a spoiler. No, <laughs> you're just being ridiculous. You could have at least called it Killer Crap, or maybe like Crap uh, Earns a Nickname. Something to pique everyone's interest, you know, something like that. I think Crap is interesting enough. Most people listening probably didn't even know it was a name. They heard me say crap, and they wondered, did he just say crap? (laughs) Now that's what I call intriguing. (laughs) Okay, so chapter 87 begins with the introduction of crap, a bit of a trickster type who's kind of hard to like, but at the same time, hard not to like. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I've been looking forward to this part for a while, and and look how long you delayed this in Scotland, by the way. We could have been talking about crap all this time. 
Well, you know, I love Hrop as much as the next guy, at least in this section. Um, he's a brilliant instigator, which is kind of fun. He really is. Did you uh, notice how Miller describes him in uh, Why Is Your Axe Bloody? No. As I said, I'm, I'm reading it right now, but I'm not up to that section yet. What does he say? Well, he describes Hrop as a lowlife who, by sheer force of his personality, overwhelms the interlude. Which is absolutely true. Well, he goes on to say, The rogue, Hrop Orgum Ledasen, he of boundless energy with the strength of a shot putter and the running ability of a sprinter and a marathoner, witty and attractive to the ladies, both young and those getting long in the tooth. Why shot putter? That's a, that's a random strong. thing for him to compare him to. Yeah, but, I'm not sure. And I don't remember seeing him do any of those no, things. No, he doesn't do any of that. So I don't know where that comes from. But uh, it's, still, well, it's still fun. On behalf of all shot putters out there, congratulations. You've been... <laughs> Yeah. You've been Millard. Uh, <laughs> okay. I can't call it high praise, but I love it. Uh, it's definitely, it's an intriguing introduction to her app. I definitely, I want to know more. Why shot put her, for example? Uh, the saga itself kind of falls down in that regard. It doesn't actually offer a real introduction to her app. Our first exposure to him is in chapter 87, where we're told there's a Norwegian merchant named Colbyn who sailed to Iceland the same summer that everyone else was leaving. So uh, we're back in chapter 75 again, and Gunnar's still alive. No, 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 no. We don't need to go back that far. Uh, after wintering in Iceland, Kolbin is preparing a ship to leave Iceland when a man in a rowboat approaches his ship, moving at a fairly uh, rigorous clip, and climbs aboard. The man introduces himself as Hrop, son of Orgumleithi, and explains that he needs a quick ride overseas. And this kind of thing is pretty common for merchants, but Kolbin is no dummy. He wants to know the reason behind Hrop's request. Yeah, and, and Hrop has a pretty good reason. He's fleeing the men of Vopnafjord after killing a man. But Hrop claims to have a good reason. He says, I'm a friend to my friends, but when something bad is done to me, I pay it back. He also adds that he'll spare no expense paying for his voyage mm-hmm. if uh, Colbin will take him. And that's when Colbin agrees to help Hrop get out of Dodge, Fjord. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. When they get to Norway and Colbyn asks where the promised money is, Hrop answers, It's back in Iceland. (laughs) Take that, Colbyn. And that's our introduction to Hrop. Uh, He's almost an inversion of Gunnar. He's handsome, athletic, charming, good to his friends and bad to his enemies, but he's also a mischievous rogue who thumbs his nose at authority every chance he gets, which is what makes him such an entertaining character. Hrop's adventures in Norway are brief, but chaotic and a little bit fun. Mm. After being kicked off of Colbane's ship, Hrop makes his way to the Hall of Guthbrand, one of Earl Hauken's closest friends. Right, now the author makes a point here of mentioning that Guthbrand owns the second largest temple in Norway, but only opens it when the Earl is present. And this is one of those little seeds the author likes to plant that will later become important. Right, and we're also told that Guthbrand has a son named Thrond and a daughter named Guthrun. Now, those details are going to be important a lot sooner, because shortly after he's invited to stay with Gudrun, Hrop begins getting a little closer to Gudrun than her father likes. And like in most of these cases, her father tells her to avoid Hrop altogether, but uh, she just can't help herself. Well, it's, you know, he's got that hair and that voice. Yes. Uh, it gets so bad that Gudrun assigns his overseer, Osvard, to follow Gudrun everywhere. But it doesn't matter. The two lovers always find a way to get together anyway. And this leads to one of my favorite lines in the saga so far. One day, Osvard, 
loses track of Gudrun in a nut grove and finds her lying in the arms of Hrop. Osvard attacks Hrop, but he quickly loses his axe. It doesn't end well for Osvard. Uh, Hrop buries the blade of the axe in Osvard's back, severing his spine completely. It's a pretty gruesome scene, even if the saga doesn't make a whole lot of it. Uh, And for some reason, Gudrun chooses that moment, that exact moment, to tell Hrop that she's pregnant. Talk about bad timing. Uh, But Hrop is a bold man. He tells her that he's going to go directly to Gudrun and tell him himself that he's not only going to be a grandpa, but a father-in-law as well. Great. Well, he's got to stop by and mention the killing anyway. Yeah. Uh, Gudrun is afraid for Hrop's life, which makes a lot of sense. And and here's the exchange that I hope wins notable witticism. Uh, do you want to read it with me? Sure, I'll be Gudbrand. Okay, so. Hrop enters the hall to find Gudbrand sitting in the high seat. Hrop approaches, holding his axe high in the air, prompting Gudbrand to say, Why is your axe bloody? I've been taking care of Osvard's backache. Not had a good will, <laughs> I suppose. You must have killed him. That's true. What was the reason? Well, it will seem petty to you, but he was trying to cut off my leg. What had you done before that? Something that was none of his business. All the same, tell me what it was. Well, if you really must know, I was lying with your daughter, and he didn't quite like that. Get on your feet, men. Seize him. Put him to death. Small benefit I get from being your son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And this begins a short sequence that feels a lot like a medieval romance, or maybe a fabliau. Uh, like an Icelandic Tristan, Hrop flees to the forest and eludes Gudbrand's men by moving about from place to place. And like Isolde, Gudrun continues to meet with her Tristan in the forest without interference from her father. Yeah, this whole part of the chapter is very, very quick. But it made me wonder if there wasn't a romance of Hrop and Gudrun out there somewhere. I doubt there was, since the author of Njal's Saga is clearly very well read and capable of inventing this brief romance narrative on his own. But it made me wish for a more developed version of this part of the story. But you've read the romances. You know how the story would go. Why bother reading something you've already got in your head? Uh, it's a fair point, I guess. But uh, a lot of the sagas also repeat the same motifs as do other books we read and movies and television shows we watch. My honest answer, though, is is that I like Hrop, and I, I just kind of want to see more of him than I do here. And I don't much like him later on. Well, <laughs> then how do you feel about what he does next? <laughs> ah, yes, the temple scene. Okay, let's do that bit now. Okay, uh, so you remember that temple we mentioned a little while back? The second largest in all of Norway. That's the one. Uh, Hrop, who's now called Killer Hrop, enters the temple one night, and we get a nice little glimpse into this author's imagining of what a late 10th century temple might have looked like. Inside, Hrop finds three full-size statues. The first is a seated statue of Thorgerd Holgerbruthi. The second is Erpa, who I guess is Thorgerd's sister, and the third mm-hmm. is Thor on his chariot. All three of the idols are dressed and ornamented with gold bracelets. Now, I want to pause just for a moment over Thorgerd Holgerbruthi. If that's all right with you, John, because I, I think she plays a more important role than I initially thought. And I want to talk about that. Since when do you get my permission before digressing? Uh, but go ahead. I was it, wondering it's just about a her courtesy. Myself. I usually plow right through. I so. know you do. Anyway, there, there's a lot of debate over Thorgerd Holgebrudi's name, actually. But I'm going to simplify things and avoid all of that 
in honor of your request to move forward. Um, let's just think of her as Thorgird Holgi's maiden. That's a good translation. And as far as the story of Hrop is concerned, this minor deity known as Thorgird Holgi's maiden is, as Cook notes, a personal goddess of the Earls of Hladi, uh, especially for Earl Hauken. Which explains why she's in this temple that only gets opened when Earl Hauken visits. Exactly right. And it means that this temple is a very important place to the Earl, which is why Hrop breaking in and putting his hands all over Thorgard's statue oh. is going to be such a major issue in a moment. Oh, he does more than just put his hands all over statues in this temple. Uh, mm-hmm. But finish with Thorgard first. Yeah, this is the last thing that I'll say about her, but it's kind of interesting. There's, an, there's a, a cool reference to both Thorgard and Irpa in the saga of the Jomsvikings, which is a legendary saga that includes the story of Earl Hauken fighting against the Vikings of Jomsberg, uh, of Jomsberg in 985. The battle is going poorly for Hauken, and he calls upon Thorgird, Holgi's maiden, to save him. But she refuses to listen. And it's not until he sacrifices his own son to her, like an Agamemnon, that, uh, that she agrees to help Hauken. At which point both Thorgerd and Irpa appear to fight alongside the Earl's army. Oh, yeah, I remember that scene. Uh, and only men with the second sight could see them, right? That's right. Um, it's possible that the author of Njalsaga knew this particular story, but at the very least, he knew how important the sisters were to Hauken, and especially Thorgerd. And he takes advantage of that in this chapter of Hrop's story. Okay, so, all right. Uh, we left Hrop standing in front of the three idols. And it's pretty clear that he doesn't respect the sanctity of the temple, because he strips them of their fancy clothing and their golden arm rings and their bracelets, and he sets the whole place on fire. <laughs> For no no real reason. Right. But uh, to be fair, he does drag the three idols out of the temple before torching the place, so oh, well, he okay. has some respect, at least. Fair enough. Uh, Hrop flees the burning temple and sets out across a field. Uh, six armed men, including Gudrun's brother Thrond, attack him. He kills three of them. And mortally wounds Thrond. Right, but rather than kill Thrond outright, he leans over him and says, I could kill you now, but I won't. I'll show more respect for my in-laws than you and your father have shown to me. Oh, what a peach. Nah, Even nice when his guy. life is in danger, Hrop always takes the time to share his wit with others. Yeah, and, and I'll add that he did mortally wound Thrond, so yes. probably killing him would be a nicer thing to do, but he's going to sit there. In the morning, Earl Hauken arrived at the temple with Gudbrand and found Hrop's work. Gudbrand spots the idol standing unharmed outside the burnt remains of the temple, and he assumes that they walked out by themselves. Sure. Uh, but Hauken knows exactly what happened, and he shouts out, The gods are in no hurry to avenge themselves, but the man who did this will be banished from Valhalla and never enter there. Ah, there's another Valhalla reference yeah. for us. Uh, and Hauken quickly discovers that Killer Hrop is responsible for the temple burning and the slaying of the three men. And what about Thrond? He's not quite dead yet. Of course, because he was mortally wounded. He survives the whole night. Poor Mm. Thrond. Yeah, it probably wasn't his best night. Better than the subsequent ones, though, I guess. (laughs) And here's where knowing about Hauken and Thorgut Holgi's maiden comes in handy. The Earl excuses himself from the group and goes off by himself. The saga tells us he gave orders that no one should follow him and stayed away for some time. He fell to his knees and held his hands over his eyes. And then he went back to the others. 
Oh, I see. He's he's praying to Thorgrid for help, isn't he? Yes, exactly like he does in the mm. saga of the Jomsvikings. Uh, we aren't told what Hauken is doing or what the significance of this private moment is, but I'm sure that's what's happening. Only this time he doesn't have to sacrifice his son in order to get Thorgrid to listen, which is kind of nice. Well, he's kind of pre-sacrificed, as it were. <laughs> Good point. Uh, anyway, it does appear to work because Hauken leads his men directly to Hrop's hiding place. True, but Hrop slips through their fingers and runs towards Lavi like a like a, a shot putter on a marathon, um, and and that's where he runs into a couple of strangers. Uh, right, yeah, um, and this is where all the threads of this episode start to come together. Uh, yes. As Hrop runs along the shore, he happens upon two ships. The first ship belongs to Helgi and Grim Jalsen, and the second belongs to none other than Thrain Sigfusson. Ah, what are the odds? What a coincidence! Mm-hmm. I know, right? Who would have thought? Now, Hrop begs the Njalsons to take him aboard and save him from the Earl's rage. He says, he's going to kill me, please help. Uh, but the Njalsons can spot a bad apple when they see one, and they refuse. And because of this, Hrop curses them, saying, Then I wish that you two have bad trouble because of me. To which Helgi replies, I'm man enough to pay you back for that when the time comes. And for now, Hrop's got to find another way out of Norway. And that's where Thrain Sigfusson comes in handy. After inquiring about the circumstances of Hrop's predicament, he eventually agrees to take Hrop on board his ship, the Griffin, and hide him in the barrels that hang over the side of the ship. Now, anyone who's read the sagas is going to be familiar with this motif. Hauken arrives and searches the ship three times. Each time he gets to shore, he realizes where Hrop must have been hiding and rows out to search again. And each time, the captain of the ship hides the criminal somewhere new. And in the end, the wind picks up and Thrain is able to sail Griffin, the fastest ship in Norway, safely away mm-hmm. with Hrop. And as he glides over the horizon, Thrain spoke a couplet that somehow Hauken finds out about. Right. Let Griffin fly forward. Thrain does not flinch. Well, the saga does say that that is widely reported later that he said this. Yes, but um, it also but suggests that-, that he heard it right then and was enraged. Right. So- right. Well, it's widely reported, Andy. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that leaves Hawken back on shore empty-handed. His temple has been burned, his friend Guthbrand humiliated, his personal deity robbed and mishandled. Hawken is furious, and he needs someone to pay for Hrop's evil deeds. Which brings us back to Helgi and Grim Njalsson. They had told Hawken that they didn't know where Hrop had gone. Even though they actually did know. Oh yes, they knew, but they decided that they didn't want to be personally responsible for Hrop's death, given the circumstances despite the curses that he put on them. Well, his curse on them was apparently effective, despite their good intentions. And we now get to see what Njal was talking about when he said their journey would be perilous, because Helgi and Grimm quickly become the targets of Hawkins' rage. Yeah, unfortunately for them, they don't have the fastest ship in Norway. Right, Thrain just left with that one. Right. Hawkins then took four longships out to where the Njalsons were anchored next to an island. And Grimm spots the ships coming, and he says, I can make out the Earl, and... I don't think he's coming to offer us peace. Grimm's got good eyes. And he's right. Uh, There's a fierce battle between the Earl's men and the Njalsons. Uh, No matter what the Earl tries, the Njalsons defend themselves brilliantly, killing several of Hawken's best men. And in the end, Hawken's son Svein leads his own men aboard the Njalsons' ship. And rather than fight with Helgi and Grimm, they use their shields to pen them in. This proves to be an effective approach, and the Njalsons are soon captured. Now, Hauken wants to execute them at once, but Sven reminds his father that it's already night. That's enough to calm Hauken for the moment, but he demands justice at first light. Which brings us to an important question from one of our listeners. 
Uh, Ingrid Ringler wrote to us on Facebook and she said, when you get to chapter 89, which is where we're at, could you address why Svein and the Earl agree that they can't put people to death after sunset? Hello, Ingrid. Uh, I think we actually might be able to help you there. Now, this question prompted another leap down the rabbit hole for me. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't turn up much beyond what you and I already suspected and have talked about before. Right, which is that killing at night in Scandinavian culture is considered taboo and immoral. Right. Now, I did find a few references to killing by night being illegal in medieval Scandinavia, but I never found the actual law itself, which kind of bummed me out. I'll keep searching. Well, I think that's definitely the issue here. Not you being bummed out. That's your own concern. Uh, the law. We get a sense of this taboo in the sagas themselves anytime somebody's killed at night. It's, it's always a major problem, and it's usually considered a murder. Right. Now, we've seen this a few times in the podcast. I'm thinking specifically of Gisli's saga as the best example. Right? Remember that Gisli used the cover of darkness to sneak in and kill Thorgrim in his bed. Now, whereas killings during the daytime are considered legal slayings, or at least usually are considered legal slayings that are open to compensation, nighttime killings, especially the ones left unclaimed, were illegal. Now, I have to imagine that there's a religious element behind the origins of this taboo, but I need to do a lot more research uh, before I can answer that more definitively, or maybe maybe someone out there might have a better answer. So help us um, out. I like our answer, but if you have a better one, please contact us. We'll make sure that Ingrid gets the answer she's looking for. Right. For now, we'll just say that in Hawkins' culture, it is considered immoral and perhaps even illegal to kill someone at night, and that's why they agree to wait. Um, I would add that it also gives Svein an opportunity to cool his father off. It's true. Uh, Sven is a little less upset at this point, and he clearly admires the Nielsens. He's doing his best to save their lives, knowing that they don't really deserve the deaths Hawkins has in store for them. Nevertheless, Helgi and Grimm are tied up on board the ship and told to wait until morning. Oh, does Sven lock them up and say, Good night, Nelsons. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Mm, no, not that I know of, but uh, everybody uh, take a drink. There's your Princess Bride reference for the episode. You're welcome, everyone. Uh, <laughs> now, Helgi and Grimm managed to escape by cutting their bindings with an axe someone left lying around. Which is really sloppy on the part of Hauken's uh -huh. men. I mean, who leaves an open axe blade around their bound prisoners? It's just careless. Yeah, no, it, well, of course it is, but it's fortunate for the Nelsons, right? It's the, it's the classic James Bond supervillain thing, right? I'm going to just tie you up, leave you here on this deck next to a sharp axe, and assume everything's going just fine. Right. Um, so, of course, they free themselves, although Grimm does manage to cut himself up pretty badly. Mm -hmm. uh, they creep overboard, and they swim ashore without being noticed. And the next morning, on the other side of the island, they see a ship coming. Ah, it's Hauken circling around to recapture them. No, they actually haven't even noticed the prisoners have gone missing yet. Which, uh, again, that's it's just sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. What are they doing? I know, I know. Uh, You're wearing a bunch ship. of red shirts over there in those Norwegians. Oh. <laughs> so the Nelsons recognize the ship coming toward them as the ocean steed of none other than Kari Solmundersen arriving in Norway. <laughs> He's got the tribute from Earl Sigurd in Orkney. Ocean steed. Really? Uh, I've already said ships. So I was trying to work around that. <laughs> okay. But uh, it is Kari who comes very conveniently, like a rock to the hand, to the mm -hmm. rescue again. <laughs> he picks them up right away and asks, what's happening here? And they explain the situation and ask Kari to join them in attacking Earl Hauken as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, Kari's not keen on that plan. No, it's not uh, a Instead, he convinces them to join him in delivering the tribute from Orkney to Earl Hauken. Wait, so... 
<laughs> okay, I don't like this plan yeah. either. He wants yeah. to take them directly to the man they just escaped from. Yes. But Kari's a very good talker, and he helps to smooth everything out. Uh, in fact, Hawkins' other son, Eric, is so ashamed of his father's behavior that he convinces the Earl to reconcile with the Nelsons and to compensate them with riches as payment for their shameful treatment. Ah, but the Nelsons are stubborn. They agree Understandably to accept the so. payment, but uh, only from Eric. They want nothing to do with Hawkins anymore. Mm-hmm. So everything works out in the end. Eric invites everyone over for dinner. They share food, exchange gifts. And then they all go raiding together with Eric around Scotland and Wales and the Isle of Man and all over the place. And they earn honor and glory and wealth along the way. What a happy ending to this story. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, after all their adventures are finished, Kari and the Njalsons decide to sail back to Iceland. Where Hrop and Thrain Sigfusson have already settled in after escaping Hauken the previous summer. Which means the second part of Njal's prophecy is still hanging over them. Their travels will bring trouble back to Iceland. Part 24. The Return of the Dungbeardlings. Back in Iceland, Thrain Sigfusson invited Hrop to stay with him for the winter, which Hrop gladly accepted. And then the following summer, Thrain gave Hrop a farm of his own, which came to be called Hropstather. Right. But even though he'd got his own farmstead, Hrop doesn't spend much time there. Nope. He likes it much better at Grota. And you know why he likes it there so much? I do. You see... Hrop is a ladies man, and there's a fine lady don't, 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 don't. living at Griota with Thrain Sigfusson that uh, catches his eye. Or at least that's what rumors suggest. Mm. Uh, I, I know what you did. Oh, I know you do. <laughs> you have some Gavassier. Uh, and who is this uh, fine lady he's got his eye on? She's a fine lady. She's really fine, in fact, with long blonde hair. And she's got slender long legs. And, and of course, she's got a, a pair of thief's eyes. Ah, that's right. It's Hologerth again. And I don't know how old she is at this point, but <laughs> she's not a young Quite. She's not a young um, lady. And while there's nothing to confirm that Hrop and Hologerth are sleeping together, pretty much everyone is sure that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And say what you want about Hologerth, I-, I think this is finally a pretty good match for her. I mean, he's got everything Gunnar mm-hmm. had except the moral compass. And they're a perfect match. <laughs> they really are. Uh, and as we all know, wherever Hologerth is... Trouble soon follows. Yeah, you can say that again. Uh, before we continue... I'd Wherever Hallgirth is, trouble soon follows. Ah, you tricked me. Uh, before we continue, uh, I just want to add really quickly that the saga notes that Thrain is now a Gothi as well, which is kind of important. Yeah, uh, and one other addition that will help set this next bit up is that Thrain's brother, Kettle, is on good terms with Njal and Njalsons. And that's, uh, we covered this once before, but that's because he's married to Thorgird, one of Njal's daughters. That's right. Oh, and uh, speaking of marriages, Ke- uh, Kari Solmunderson marries Njal's other daughter, Helga. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's part of the family mm-hmm. now as well. There's a lot of stuff going on. Right. And that's that's actually kind of important. We probably should have started with that. Oh, well, uh, better late than never. We covered it. So uh, the Njalsons waste no time in complaining to Kettle about his brother Thrain's behavior back in Norway. They haven't forgotten mm-hmm. the treatment they suffered because of Thrain's deceit and Hrop's treachery of Earl Haugen. And they want justice from both of them, either in money or in blood. They don't care which. Uh-huh. Now, Njal attempts to use Kettle as a go-between to help smooth things over, but Thrain doesn't particularly care for the Njalsons' complaints. Kettle's in a really awkward position here. Yeah. And and what about Hrop? Well, he cares even less. Uh, in fact, he probably finds the whole thing funny. So, so what are they to do? If Thrain's not willing to compensate them, 
there's really only one path to restoring their honor. Violence. Violence is always the answer. Well, I think you just answered your own question. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, but Njal advises them to bide their time. He knows that any attack on Thrain or Hrop would be unjustified without a greater claim against them. Instead, he tells them to wait and to send as many people as possible to speak with the men of Grotta about what happened. Njal predicts that they will often say terrible things about Grimm and Helgi, at which point they can build a stronger case against the two of them. Njal then tells his sons to only speak out against the slander if they are pushed too hard and if they're ready to act. Yeah, I find it interesting that Njal is once again directly involved in setting up his enemies for destruction. He has no plans to work this conflict out peacefully, but he does plan to work it out legally. What he mm. needs is adequate provocation to justify action and violence. Right. It's, not, it's a good point, actually. He's uh, he's working with a different kind of law mm-hmm. than we often think of the law as being. Right. The, the, the law, in this case, will help him to justify violence. Yes. Uh, and he won't have to wait long. As Njal already knows, Grotta is a den of snakes by this point. Among the more important characters slithering around there with Holgerth, Thrain and Hrop, are Gunnar's son Grani, Gunnar Lambeson and Lambi Sigurdsson. Uh, while Thrain himself is fond of insulting Njalsons, no one relishes it more than Grani and Killerhrop. Yeah, I'm so disappointed in all of them, really. But but I'm especially disappointed in Grani. I mean, that's that's mm. no way for Gunnar's son to behave. Uh, but it's exactly how Holgerth's son would behave. That's true. Uh, and all of this comes to a head one day when the four Njalsons and Kari travel out to Gyota to hear some of the slander in person. Hold on a second. There's four Njalsons mm-hmm. going? Yeah. Remind me, uh, I know there's Helgi and Grimm. We just talked about them. And obviously Skarpathen. Who, who am I forgetting? Hoskold Njalsson. Ah. Uh, Njal's illegitimate son. That's it. He's been relatively quiet so far in the song. There you go. Okay, thanks. So... As the four Njalsons and Kari approach Grotta, Thrain orders his men to go out onto the porch with their weapons to greet them all properly. Imagine the sight that greets the Njalsons on that porch. Thrain is standing there in the middle, with Hrop and Grani at his sides, and next to them are Gunnar Lambeson and the rest of the crew, totaling 15 men, all holding weapons, all lined up on the porch. Yeah. This whole scene is beautifully done. Uh, from the distant approach to the lineup of the bad guys... Yeah to Scarpathen walking up to the porch, flanked by Kari, Hoskold, Grimm, and Helgi. It feels exactly like a Western, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is. It absolutely is. And a good Western. Uh, this scene is dripping with tension. Yeah, and it only gets better. Uh, the conversation begins with Scarpathen stepping up and saying, Welcome to all of us. I love that guy. Uh, Hrop may be witty at times, but he's never a good person. Scarpathen has all the best one-liners in the saga. Yeah, he probably does, and he'll probably take uh, notable witticism from uh, Hrop so. in the end anyway. Uh, and and it's a, such a funny, very modern-feeling way to break the tension of the moment. Uh, you don't see that mm-hmm. in medieval literature that often, that kind of sarcasm. It's really brilliant. Uh, in addition to being funny, he's also drawing attention to a, a fairly serious breach of etiquette by Thrain's household. As hosts, even to hostile visitors... They're the ones who are supposed to greet the guests. And they very pointedly don't welcome anyone. This is exactly the kind of thing Njal was expecting them to do. So the plan is actually working out so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holgerth is also not impressed by Scarpathen's sarcastic greeting. And she tells her visitors, they aren't welcome at all. To which Scarpathen responds, your words don't count. For you're either a cast-off hag or a whore. That's, that's a devastating insult, and it's because the wording is so well chosen. Yes. 
The word Scarpe then uses is horncurling. It's the term that Holgerth used herself when told to move down by Bergthora at the start of their feud many episodes ago. Mm-hmm. She told Bergthora she wasn't some sort of horncurling who could be so easily pushed aside. And that word, uh, horncurling, literally means corner woman, or a woman who sits in the corner of the house, no longer needed or regarded by anyone. That's right. Thus, a, a cast-off hag. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Scarpathen is using that word now to describe her, as well as whore. Uh, no doubt because of her rumored relationship with Killer Hrop. Yes. And at this point, Helgi steps forward and formally asks for compensation from Thrain for what happened in Norway. I don't think he expects to get it, but there's a point to this. He's looking for insults. And once again, Thrain follows through and gives an insulting rejection. And to make matters worse, Hrop adds that the Njalsons got what they deserved, prompting Skarpathen to say, I won't be stingy, Hrop, about driving my axe into your head. See, it's another good line. Yeah. But that's nothing. The whole exchange ends with uh, Holgerth saying, Go home, dung beardlings. <laughs> and she includes a taunt about their father, old beardless, as well. Right. And by the time the Njalsons leave, everyone on the porch had said something horrible enough to deserve some form of compensation for the Njalsons, bloody or otherwise. Right. Now we can say that Njal's plan is coming together here. It is. Now, this is a major development in the story. Now, remember these insults, old beardless and dung beardlings. Uh, we talked about them a few episodes back. Right. Uh, when Holgerth and her relative Sigmund created verses mocking Njal's baby smooth face. Yeah. Uh, and Gunnar, remember, forbade anyone from repeating those words on pain of suffering his fury. And it worked. Everyone was so frightened that even Holgerth never dared to violate Gunnar's ban. Uh, yeah, I remember that. But uh, Gunnar, you remember, is he's uh, dead now. We're not back in time. Yeah. Um, and that means that Njal's lost a strong ally in protecting his masculine reputation. Yes. And without that threat of Gunnar's anger, there's nothing to stop the slander from being repeated. And there are a lot of people present who have reasons to want to spread gossip against Njal. Which is made clear right away. The narrative continues by saying, There was much talk about this conflict of theirs, and everybody realized that, as things were, it would not calm down. So, even if most people recognize that Holgerth's gang is just making trouble, the public knowledge of the beardless and dungbeards insult has brought things to a point where violence is inevitable. Uh, which brings us to the climax of this episode. Finally. But not the end. Uh, we do have one more section after this plays out, so hold your horses. Oh, I know that. I'm just happy to get to this scene. It's one of my all-time favorites. I think it's everybody's all-time favorite. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those moments that I vividly remember reading for the first time. Well, then, uh, take it away, Skipper. Happily. Uh, we could rush this, but we're not going to. <laughs> oh, now, good. now, here we are. Right. <laughs> it's too good for that. So this episode is going to have to just be a little bit longer. Uh, look, I don't have a problem with that. I love the scene. It deserves a bit of time. Uh, so a little bit of time passes between the meeting at Griotta and the final battle. We're going to skip the information gathering and planning stages and jump right into the conflict itself. Really? You know, I'm always inclined to comb through the minutiae of even the most insignificant of scenes for some crumb of interest. We know. There's a lot to be said, for example, about the politics underlying Thrain's rise to power and his relationship with Njal. Uh, we could talk about that if you want. No. You sure you, sure you don't want to do more of that? Maybe stretch this thing to no. two or three hours? Uh, thanks, but no. I'm, uh, no. I'm happy to take our time with the battle itself, but we can't do everything. All right, suit yourself. Let's set the stage. 
It's winter. The sun is shining. The skies are clear. The Markofjot River is flowing between ledges of ice with frozen arches spanning the stream here and there. Thrain, Hrop, and six other men are making their way home from a visit to their friend Renal's farm, their feet crunching in the snow. <laughs> nice. Bergthor has learned about their movements from a group of poor women who had run into Thrain's group earlier. She told Scarpe then where and when to look for Thrain's group. Now, on the morning of the battle, as Thrain is making his way toward his doom, Njal awakens to the sound of Scarpehaven's axe in the wall of his bed closet. As he steps outside, we shift to his perspective and see each of his sons standing there preparing for the fight. And we're given a brilliant description of what each of them is wearing. Almost like a like an arming scene from the Iliad. Yeah, I guess it is. Um, Scarpehaven is standing in front. He's cinching on a black jacket, holding a small round shield with his axe ready on his shoulder. Njal next notices Kari. He's got on a silk jacket and a gilded helmet. He's holding a shield with a lion drawn on it. He's a flashy guy, isn't he? Uh, After him, we see Helgi, who's wearing a red tunic and a helmet. His shield is red and marked with a heart. The deer, not the organ. But you knew that. I did. And finally, there's Grimm, and he's wearing, well... We really don't know. Apparently, the author gave up on Grimm because he doesn't even get a mention here. I, but I know well, he's there. He's definitely there. He's there. He's dressed. He's ready for action. Uh, the young men converse briefly with Njal, finalizing their plans before heading out to Ravaskrit to lie in wait for Thrain's group. And this is where knowing your Icelandic geography can come in handy. Because it helps us to see the what, the how, and the why of moments like this. Now, if you pull up a map of Iceland, like Emily Lethbridge's amazing Icelandic saga map, you can locate Ráðaskrith as a short mountain, now called Stóradímon, that's surrounded by flatlands. And when you look at this on a map, especially a satellite image of the land, you can understand why the Njálsons would choose this location to set up their ambush. Mm Ráðaskrith is directly north of Dalar, where Thrain is coming from, and southeast of Gryota, where he's headed. It's smack dab in the middle of Thrain's path, it's elevated, and it provides a view of the landscape for miles around in every direction. It's the perfect spot for this. It is almost. There is one problem with it. As Thrain approaches along the gravel path, his companion, Lambi Sigurdesson, notices the light of the sun reflecting off of something up on Ralvaskreeth. He rightly guesses that the Njalsons are waiting for them there. So there is that one flaw, is that they're, they're way up high and they can be seen. Thrain advises that they turn and ride along the river, forcing the Njalsons to come to them. Now, Scarpe then notices this and realizes that they've been spotted. He advises that everyone hurries down to intercept Thrain before he gets away. So the Njalsons rush down as fast as they can to meet their enemies. Right. Now, Thrain's group is moving along the river, working their way downstream toward a frozen archway that can be used to bridge the river. Thrain stops his men and prepares to make a stand on the upriver side of the arch. He takes off his helmet and does a quick count of the approaching Njalsons. Why, he asks, would five men try to ambush eight? Well, because the Njalsons and Kari are that good. Njal was right. (laughs) Thrain really is kind of dumb. Like, I don't know why he's standing there with his helmet off. I I think that's been proven by now. Um, He's a leader in the district, but he's not a very good one. It's still a good question, though. These are five men who really should be able to call on some friends. Uh, one of the things that you notice in this saga is that the Njalsons operate on their own a great deal of the time. Mm-hmm. They seem to lack that kind of that broad uh, uh, set of connections in the neighbor in the neighborhood and among their 
friends and relatives that you would expect prominent men to have. I think that's something that we're going to see becoming a problem for them as the saga goes on. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, Thrain is still making a tremendous miscalculation here. Uh, and that's pretty typical of the man. He's careless and impulsive and boastful, and he keeps bad company. He's not valuing the Nialsons at their level, and he's overvaluing the men he has with him. It's really too bad that he's the one to lead the Sigvisons. Yeah, it is. Kettle would have been so much better. Now, while the Nialsons are racing toward Thrain, Scarpathen notices that his shoe strap is broken. This forces him to stop and fix it while his brothers race forward. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm going to just go read the saga because it's too good not to. All right, go ahead. Scarpathen jumped up as soon as he tied his shoe and had his axe raised. He ran to the river, but it was so deep that for a long stretch it was unfordable. A broad slab of ice, smooth as glass, had formed on the other side of the river, and Thrain and his men were standing in the middle of it. Scarpathen took off into the air and leaped across the river from one ice ledge to the other and made a steady landing and shot on by in a glide. The ice slab was very smooth, and Scarpathen went along as fast as a bird in flight. Thrain was about to put on his helmet, but Scarpathen came at him first and swung his axe at him and hit him in the head and split it down to the jaw so that the molars fell out onto the ice. This happened in such rapid sequence that no one could land a blow on Scarpathen. He went gliding away at a furious speed. Chorvi threw a shield in his way, but he leapt over it and kept his balance and glided to the end of the ice slab. Only then, Karian and the others came up to him. A manly attack, that, said Kari. This is such an awesome moment. Yeah, I don't have anything scholarly or smart to say about this. It's just awesome. This is why we read the sagas. Oh, wait, oh, wait, hold on. I know something interesting about that passage. What? Well, the distance of the jump would be one thing to talk about. It's been measured at anywhere between 23 feet and 18, based on the width of the Markerfjallt River at this area. Well, I mean, that that's pretty far either way. Yes, it is. I know. I, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine, um, and we were debating how far we could jump in even the best of conditions without armor or proper weapons. <laughs> I know you can't jump 18 feet. You are, I'm not arguing that. We hung out in the parking lot and kind of tried to jump around. Um, I mm -hmm. could barely make 10 feet. Uh, I, in fact, I couldn't make 10 feet. Well, you're hardly in the same shape as Scarpathen. Thanks. Say that. Thanks a lot. So maybe he could do it. Yeah, I'm willing to give him credit for 15 feet at the most. But the world record set by Mike Powell in 1991 is really just over 29 feet. I think it's 29 feet, 4 inches, something like that. Um, and that allows for the jumper to fall down at the end, like in the Olympics. So Scarpathen's jumping in precarious conditions and then sliding and killing as he lands. I seriously doubt he could hit that 23. Okay, but to be clear, the author never actually claims that it's 23 feet or 18 or any feet at all. He just says Scarpathen leapt across the unfrozen part of the river. True, uh, but people are curious and they want to know, so they measured. So here's one more interesting tidbit about this moment. We're right in the middle of the battle, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, check this out. You know how Scarpathen buries his axe so far in Thrain's head that the teeth clatter on the ice below? Yes. It's a, it's a best bloodshed candidate for sure. And it reminds me that in modern hockey, players refer to losing teeth during a game as spitting chiclets because of the way they bounce on the ice. That's great. Now, why do you know that? <laughs> uh, well, I do follow hockey, but I, I actually learned that while prepping a discussion of sports idioms for my History of English Language course. <laughs> Very interesting. I'm sure the students love that. Um, <laughs> um, now, the point that I want to make is that at least one of the manuscripts of this saga includes a scribal notation in the margins here explaining that Scarpathen picks up a few of the molars 
and puts them mm-hmm. in a purse. Now that's see, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. We never really talk about the manuscript culture of the sagas, but that's an interesting one. I know why that note is there, but we'll have to save that for a later episode. Exactly. Now, that's the only reason I mentioned it. Put that in your heads or mm-hmm. your purse, if you will. And uh, let's move forward. Finish this battle for us, John. Now, the momentum is kind of dead. <laughs> you sunk your digressive axe so deep into this scene that there's little hope of saving it. Oh, come on. Just try. Revive it. Okay. Uh, so Grim and Helgi spot Hrop and close the distance. Hrop swings at Grim, but before he can land the blow, Helgi steps in. And slices Hrop's axe arm clean off. Now, Hrop is surprised by this, but he does maintain his well, composure. You would be. He looks at Helgi and says, You've done what needed doing. That arm brought wounds and death to many men. To which Grimm says, This'll put an end to it. And then he puts a spear right through Hrop, finishing him off. It's a good death for Hrop, I have to say. Oh, Hrop. You had so much potential back in Norway. But, uh... After Holger's influence, I'm glad you're gone. You might be a fun-loving guy, anti-authoritarian, a little trickstery, but uh, you turned into a real jerk in Iceland. Guthbrand and Hawken might argue he was always a jerk. <laughs> true. Uh, for that matter, so were the people of Vapnefjord, who he was fleeing when we first met him. Ah, true enough. Uh, but after this, uh, Kari does some more of his acrobatics, jumping over a spear thrown his way before rushing in to kill a man named Tjorvi. Uh, more important, though, is what happens when Skarpathen gets a hold of Granny Gunnarsson and Gunnar Lambeson. He says, I've caught two puppies. What should I do with them? Now, Helgi tells him to kill these young men and seal their fates as soon as possible. Mm. And it's important to remember that Helgi's the one with foresight here. Yes. Uh, but Skarpathen admits he doesn't have the heart to kill Gunnar's son, especially after helping Hogni avenge their father. Yeah, but I'm with Helgi here. These are bad dudes. And Helgi tells Skarpathen that the day will soon come when he will wish that he had killed them. Well, he might. But Skarpathen just can't bring himself to do it. In the end, they spare Grani, Gunnar Lambison, Lambi Sigurdsson, and another guy who happens to be along on the journey named Lothen. So, of the eight guys they ambushed, only four get killed? That's right. But ah. they took care of the ones that mattered most. Perhaps, but I'm still with Helgi. Uh, Scarpathian is asking for trouble. And, I, you know, if there's eight guys, kill them all. That's what I say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, well, Njal agrees. Um, this section ends with an ominous prediction from Njal, who says, These are serious events, and it is likely the death of one of my sons will result from this, if nothing worse. Which means that there's a new prophecy hanging over the Njalsons. But for now... We turn to a new man in the saga. Part 25. The Rise of Hoskuld Thrainson. Now, I know we didn't mention it before, but Thrain Sigvason had a son named Hoskuld. Well, we announced his birth a while back. He was introduced as a baby around the same time Hogni and Grani Gunnarsson came into the saga. He's only mentioned in passing, but it says that Thrain and Thorgerd had a son around the same time that Holgerd's father, Hoskuld, had died. And Thorgerd decided to name the boy Hoskuld as a sign of respect to her grandfather. Now, in the aftermath of Thrain's death, Kettle takes young Hoskuld as his foster child. Um, there are some rules and conditions that his mother wants to place on Kettle, but uh, we might talk about those at a later mm-hmm. date. Now, at the same time, Njal begins working on a settlement for the slaying of Thrain that will make both sides happy. His mm-hmm. first move is to get Thrain's brother Kettle and Gunnar's son Hogni involved in the settlement. Right. The good guys. He promises to pay as much as it will take to resolve the issue and restore peace in the region. And this works out pretty well. 
In addition to establishing a legal settlement with money, Njal also approaches Kettle and asks if he can take over the fostering of Thrain's son, Hoskuld. Which is an interesting move by Njal. It speaks to his political savvy that he's uh, willing to bring Thrain's son into his house in an effort to smooth over relations between the two families. I mean, this is the kid who should, by rights, grow up and kill Scarpathen to, revent, uh, to avenge his father. Well, he's welcome to try. Uh, no, it is a good move by Njal, especially since he checks to make sure that Hoskuld understands the circumstances of his father's death. Hoskuld tells Njal, the matter is finished, since full compensation was already paid. Yeah, which impresses Njal. Uh, it also helps, I think, that Njal gives Hoskuld a, a gold ring here, as if he's paying Hoskuld compensation for Thrain outside of the legal settlement. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going further than he has to by law, because he wants to ensure that Hoskuld sees the matter as truly concluded. Right. So, Njal brings Hoskuld home and raises him as his foster son. I, 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 when I read that, I, I kind of wonder how um, Hoskuld's mother feels about this, since... You know, her husband was killed by Njal's family, but Njal has him now. And uh, Njal treats Hoskuld very well as he raises him. He does everything that he can for him. He loves him as his own son, and he trains him to be a successful adult. Right. Now, time passes quickly. Uh, a lot of time passes in the saga between events, so we're not always aware of that. But Hoskuld now, we sort of see him very quickly grow up to be a big, strong man. He's handsome, with beautiful hair. There's a lot of well-haired men in this saga. Uh, he's a good speaker, he's generous, he's even-tempered, he's skilled in fighting, and he's got a kind word for everyone. Yeah, you have any uh, more superlatives you want to throw at Hoskold, John? Don't blame me. I'm just going through the list of qualities from this saga. Don't forget, this is the cousin and grandson of Gunnar. <laughs> so, you know, he's a, he's bound to be good-looking. There's good genes there. There you twice. go. Well, anyway, he's an amazing guy. We get it. At this point, we're introduced also to a man named Flossie. Right, Flossie Thorderson. Uh He's someone to keep track of. He's got a major role later in the saga. Maybe he does, but for now, he's a great chieftain in the Svinafell region, um, which is in the southeast of Iceland. And we're also introduced to his brothers Starkath, Thorgeir, Stein, Kolbane, and Ale. Oh, is that all? And more important for our conclusion here, we learn that Flossie's brother Starkath has a daughter named Hildegund. She's described as a tough woman with a mind of her own and very beautiful. Great. So what you're telling me is that as soon as Holgerth leaves the saga, we get a younger model to replace her. You know, I, I hope she's at least got a better sense than Holgerth. Well, it does say she has a harsh temper. Oh, God. But she's a fine woman when she has to be. That's not exactly reassuring. No, it's not. Uh, it doesn't matter much, though, because Njal has it in his head that Hildegund would make a great match for his foster son, Hoskuld. See, I thought that Njal had foresight. What is the logic of this match? Doesn't he know her character? Well, I think you know exactly what Njal is up to. He's doing this for the same reason that he needed Thrain to die. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I wasn't going to talk about it because we're running long here, but there's some interesting discussions about this. Right, we should mention it. Uh, since we spent some time in the last episode talking about Njal's political maneuvering. Yeah, I know that Miller and uh, Armin Jakobsen make the point that Njal kind of wants Thrain eliminated in large part because Thrain begins to establish himself as an authority in the region who isn't willing to work with Njal. Right. Now, for the record, I don't buy that argument. I think Njal's actions at this point are more a reaction to the threats against his sons and his own honor. But Miller's argument fits the evidence as well. 
Right. And I kind of like what Miller and Jakobsen are saying. But either way, that means it's time for his enemy to dance with Scarpathen. No one wants to dance with Scarpathen. No, they don't. He always steps on toes, I hear. And cleaves heads in twain while grinning awkwardly. It really kills the mood. <laughs> right. So, in addition to muting the influence of the Siegfussens in the region by killing Thrain and adopting his son... Njal is preparing to expand his influence eastward by creating a marriage alliance with Flossi's influential family. And I assume, John, that you at least agree with that part. Oh, yeah. That this no, that is a political fine. move. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Njal is, is not politically naive by any means. Well, then he sees the threat that Thrain represents. So I'm not sure why you disagree with Miller and, and Jagobsen there. I can tell you why. Because just because Njal sees a threat doesn't mean that he automatically has to move to murder everyone who's a threat to him. He's not... A madman. He's not a criminal mastermind. He's not murdering everybody in his path to achieve dominance. It, it is what he does. Notice how in every other situation where somebody threatens him, he attacks them legally. He creates a situation yeah, where they get they, their honor is reduced. Now suddenly we've leapt to the idea that he's murdering everybody who gets in his way. It's a big leap forward, and we're making great assumptions about who Nyal is and what his motivations are. Well, with law, the land will rise as long as you can control the law. That's kind of what Njal represents. And and if that doesn't work out for you, just have people murdered in large numbers? Sometimes, if you need to. <sighs> Nonsense. Uh, so Njal and his sons now ride out to meet with Flossie, who, as the head of the family, has the right to make decisions on behalf of his niece. And while Flossie likes the proposal, he makes a point of consulting Hildegun before agreeing. Aha! There's another example of female consent in this right. song. Clearly everyone's learned something from Hallgirth's earlier example. Uh, the trouble is that Hildegun doesn't think Hoskold is worthy of her. He may be handsome and charming and an all-around great guy, but she wants to marry a Gothi. Njol asks for three years to make this happen, which isn't really a problem for Hildegun or Flossie. Um, the only other condition that Hildegun makes at this point is that she wants to remain in the east with her family, even if, after three years, Holskold gets the Gothorth and uh, they marry. But uh, Njal says that this matter will be left up to Holskold when the time comes. I mean, of course, he already knows what Holskold will decide when the time comes. Yeah, of course. Now, the only problem for Njal is that there are no Gothorths available in Iceland for Hoskold to take over. Mm -hmm. And he tries to find someone who's willing to sell the Gothorth, which can be sold like a property, but he can't manage to convince anyone. Right. Now, I know we talked about the Gothorth being different from a typical chieftaincy last time, and this is a good example of that. A Gothorth, unlike a sort of traditional chieftaincy, can be bought and sold at this point in Iceland's history. Kind of like modern America. You know? Oh. Anyway. So uh, what is Njal supposed to do at this point? Is he supposed to just give up and find another woman for Hoskold? Oh, please, please do. I wish you oh, would do no. that. No, no. Njal, if you can believe it, has got a cunning plan. <laughs> yes, finally a cunning plan. Now, this one's a doozy and it's got major repercussions. Uh, because everyone always comes to Njal for advice in legal matters, he decides to take advantage of his authority. The next mm -hmm. summer, when the all thing comes around... He does his very best to give specific advice that will ruin both the prosecution and the defense of every case. And this results in chaos at the all thing. Everyone is upset because they have to go home with their cases unresolved. And that means no compensation for anyone, no closure, nothing. Now the next thing, when Njal calls for the new lawsuits to be brought forward, there's a lot of grumbling. 
Everyone says there's, there's hardly any point, since the courts themselves were failing. Yeah, they even say that they'd rather start settling things with swords, like in the good old days. Right, now the fact that that's the good old days tells you a great deal about this culture. Uh, but it, yes. at this point, Nial steps forward and says, That you must not do, for it will not do to be without law in the land. Which is hilarious, since this is the guy that disrupted everything. He's the reason that everything fell apart. Yeah, no, uh, Nial's got some nerve. Uh, and these people are playing right into his hands. Uh, Nyal then suggests, in a tone of deep concern, that the legal authorities of the land convene to resolve the problem with the courts. And that's where he goes all in. He meets with the chieftains of Iceland and the law speaker, Skapti Thoritz. Oh, my thingman. Yes, your thingman. And Nyal explains that the problem is with the structure of the courts themselves, you know? When cases are tried at the quarter courts, he argues, everything becomes so entangled that nothing can be settled. They're pointless. Now, I assume, does he mention that it was working fine until he started mucking up the works? <laughs> no, that would kind of defeat his purpose. Mm. Instead... He proposes, in all his wisdom, that they create a fifth court, mm. which would act as an appellate court that would try cases that failed in the quarter court. Now, I know that the whole court system of Iceland is kind of confusing, so don't feel bad if you aren't following the details of this. Um, Andy promised to put together a saga brief that would explain the legal system of medieval mm. Iceland, and so that should be ready any time now. Uh, yeah, I did that, mm-hmm. didn't I? Mm. Well, hopefully I follow through on that better than I did with uh, Gretchen and Beowulf. Uh, I know <laughs> I know it's a subject that you get excited about. Yes. Uh, for now, it's uh, it's fine to think of the fifth court as a kind of appellate court, uh, which is an appealing concept to Njal's audience. Uh, appellate appealing, I get it. Uh, yeah, it is. But uh, Skopti has one question, though. That's right. Uh, he says... How can you set up a fifth court when the quarter courts were set up on the basis of the traditional number of Goldar? 36 from each quarter. (laughs) You know, that's a perfect voice for that guy. Sounds like a real jackass. Oh, no. Remember, he has to have a voice that can uh, (laughs) bounce off the law rock and be heard all over. (laughs) (laughs) That's the major job qualification is that the man can speak loudly. And now you see how Njal's cunning plan is meant to work. No, it, it actually is a cunning plan in the very best sense. Yeah, the solution, Njal humbly suggests, mm-hmm. is to create new Godors and to appoint the best qualified men from each district. And that's it. And before you can say Bryn and Njal, Hoskel Thrainson, you won't believe it, is named the new Gothi <laughs> of Fittiness and Chieftain of the Fifth Court. Yes, there's some really interesting legal stuff that we're going to skip over in the establishment of the Fifth Court that comes from probably legal documents that the uh, author was using. Um, But if you like that sort of thing, you go ahead and read it yourself and look up where it comes from. But if you can wait... Of course, if you like that kind of thing, you're probably already us. That's right. But uh, if you can wait on it, I will cover all of that in the eventual saga brief in the year 2027. Right, we'll get right on that. Uh, And now that Hoskold has his Godorth... Njal rushes him back out east to seal the deal with Flossie and Hildegun. The dowry is paid, and Hoskold marries Hildegun. You know, as proud as I am of Njal, I can't help but feel like this whole thing is a bad idea. Well, it very well could be. But that's a problem for another day. For now, ah. we are done with this marathon episode. Yes, thank you everyone for sticking with us. Assuming you did. And feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook to share your thoughts on anything that we covered or didn't cover this time around. Good Lord, is there anything we didn't cover? 
Uh, oh, yes, actually. Of course, you could also hop in a small aircraft, fly over our houses, and vaporize a low viscosity oil out the back as you deliver your important message in skywriting. <laughs> uh, these are getting weirder and weirder, John. Do you have an endgame here? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, telepathy? <laughs> All right. So I think that's it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like what you hear, and we will see you next time when things start to get a little bit messy. Start to get messy? When were they ever neat and tidy around here? Excellent point. Uh, tune in to find out about the new mess in part seven of our endless summer saga. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. listening probably didn't even know it was a name. They heard me say crap, and they wondered, did he just say crap? <laughs> now that's what I call intriguing. <laughs> yes! Woo! <laughs> okay. Oh my god. Oh my jacket. <laughs>